0: What if there was an exchange where you could trade on any event like the Super Bowl or the Oscars for Best Picture or even the federal elections? How about the 2022 elections? Will Congress flip? And what does this mean for the future of FinTech? Hey, it's Kirsten. Welcome to the first episode of Study Hall season two. Today, we're taking a look at event trading, the elections, and the thread that ties these two topics together. A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with Tarek Manzor, the co-founder of Kalshi, the first federally regulated exchange where people can trade on the outcome of events. Kalshi makes it possible to trade on everything from the outcome of the Grammys, weather and airport delays, and potentially even the elections. Tarek and his co-founder, Luna Lara Lopez, met when they were students at MIT. That idea for Kalshi came on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs.
1: How the idea basically formed was from these experiences where when I was at Goldman in 2016, I was working on this equity exotics desk. And in that summer, you know, 90 to 95 percent of the trades we made, like the flow, was institutions coming to us and asking us, hey, I want to get exposed to Brexit or hedge myself against Brexit. And same thing with the for, the for the Trump elections or 2016 elections. And so it was interesting to me because we would bundle these very complex things. We would add a bunch of options and swaps and a number of instruments into one thing, sell it to the fund it was a proxy for what they wanted. It wasn't exactly this kind of binary risk they wanted. And two, we would charge crazy fees, like sometimes up to 40% premiums. And so to me it was like, why is there no exchange where you can trade on on the event directly, given how much trading or demand there is, and given that events have as much economic importance as anything else. And that was it. After that point, every time like I worked in finance at Citadel at Five Rings, I, and, and same thing with the one at Bridgewater and Citadel, it was everywhere. Like. All these funds were actually functionally trading on events, but they were doing it indirectly via proxies, via you know the traditional instruments. And so it became very clear to us. It was like, actually, okay, we, we got grain futures and oil futures and a bunch of traditional instruments because grain has importance for the economy, because oil is important to the economy. And then we got swaps, like interest rate swaps, because interest rates are important to the economy. And then it was like, wait, isn't politics important to the economy? Isn't weather or climate important to the economy? Isn't COVID important to the economy? And all these kind of non-traditional things extremely important to the economy and exposing a lot of people to risks. So we're like, OK, how about we create an exchange that allows, that allows us and allows people to trade on commodities that are non-traditional. Like, let's commoditize COVID and economic indicators and politics.
0: This is all so cool. But what about the other side of the trade? If I bet on Taylor Swift winning a Grammy, who's going to bet on her losing? According to Tarek, it's similar to
1: trading stocks. It, it, it functions a little bit similarly to stock, where whenever someone is buying, let's say interest rates going up, someone is selling that event, someone is buying the other side, and we match them. So we have an order book, a little bit like you know in stock. So if someone wants to buy it for fifty, someone wants to sell for fifty, we create a, a trade, and so they're essentially the two counterparties. Now, something that is specific about our model to start with is we are what we call fully cash collateralized, which means that the two traders have to put all the collateral and the margin up front. So we never have a situation where, like in traditional like options, for example, they can call you back up and say, hey, we need more margin, we need more collateral, or we, you're getting margin called. And the reason we started like this is because it's safer. It's safer for people that are not necessarily as sophisticated. And over time, it can basically expand the model. Um So now there's no real counterparty risk uh, because the money is taken up front. So there's never a risk of default or anything like that.
0: Kalshi is making event trading accessible for people who normally wouldn't have the financial resources to do so. Anyone in the U.S. can sign up to trade in less than 30 seconds on Kalshi.com. And you can trade with less than
1: $1. We're different from traditional exchanges where we, you know, we have we don't have any kind of eligibility requirements. Anyone can sign up and we want it to be accessible to anyone. We also have direct access where, you know, for example, the New York Stock Exchange, you, you cannot sign up to the New York Stock Exchange. You sign up to a broker that routes your orders to the exchange. For us, it's Kalshi.com, you know, sign up takes less than 30 seconds and then you're in. Um, it goes through KYC, etc. And then this is something that's very interesting. We created the granularity of our markets are $1. So actually you can trade with even less than $1. Uh, and that could be your first trade to try it out. And, and we felt that that's really important so that, I, I don't know. I don't know why financial markets historically had these limits, these, these like floors. It was all, it always felt weird to me. I mean, you're just blocking a certain set of the population from entering. And I don't understand why. I mean, um, so, we didn't. We, anyone can trade from a dollar all the way to much, much more. Um, and so the way it works, so let's say, you know, will it snow in Washington uh, tomorrow? And so this is a contract, an event contract. It has a very specific set of rules, like what does snow mean and what is the level of snow for us to determine that this actually snowed? And what is the settlement source? Like usually it's basically, you know, the the, the weather nation, or the, the yeah, the weather channel or something like that. Um, and then what people can do is like, Let's say you want to take a position that it will snow and I don't. What you would do is say, like, I want to buy 100 shares at price, let's say, 50 cents, which means that you believe there's 50% chance of it raining. If I want to sell that to you, I will have to sell 100 shares at 50 cents. And now we have a trade, right? So you will pay $50 for those 100 shares, and I'll pay $50. And whoever ends up, if it ends up snowing, you'll take the $100. So you'd be paying $50 to make $100, which is a 2x return. Pretty simple. And then the interesting thing is that before the event happens or not, you can also exit your position. So let's say you bought at 50%, and then tonight, it seems very likely that it's going to snow tomorrow. And now the market is trading at 80%. You can exit at 80% and make that 30% difference as pure profit. Um, It's essentially close out your position, same way that you would close it out in a stock or an option or other.
0: And with the political, environmental, and economic volatility in the world increasing, Tarek says that event trading can be used kind of like insurance.
1: And it's interesting because it, there's a variety of trends that are going in the same direction, but like, you know, now everyone is exposed to everything. Like we weren't as a country and people exposed to a war in Europe as we were, like we, as, as we are today, you know, now something happens in Europe or in Asia, we're exposed to it and there's trickle down consequences to us. And so um, that has become more and more clear I think uh, to the broader thing and, and to the point you're making big institutions and people with enough net worth to have a wealth manager they do put on these hedges they do manage that risk right they, they're not you know and, and they have people doing it for them they have you know enough sophistication enough money to walk into Goldman to do it for them and so really the premise was like okay what if we bring that thing that's very important to people with lots of money or institutions with lots of money to people with doubt uh, and I think that resonated because, you know, maybe there's a difference in resources, but there's no difference in level of exposure to risk, right? Everybody is equally exposed to an election or to the next hurricane in Florida. Um, And I think people are essentially, you know, um, aware of that. So, you know, I I think there's like a, 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 there's like a two planes here where it's like, do you have that economic need? I think people have been aware of this for a very long time. They know when they're getting hit by a hurricane in Cuba, in Florida. That's something that they're very kind of, uh, it's very intuitive to them because they know what the consequences are. The thing they don't know, and to your point, is that there is a way to actually mitigate that risk. You, you don't need to just be like, oh, this is an act of God and this happens to me and there's nothing I can do about it. No, actually now there is. And what you can do about it is either, either straight up make money from it, which is great, or to insure yourself. I mean, this, you know, this is how insurance, like, you know, if your business is going to be destroyed or you, your, your home is going to get some damage or, I don't know, other uh, kind of negative consequences, you can get paid a certain amount of money to compensate for a lot of this damage. Um, and I think that's resonating with people and, and small businesses and, and, you know, obviously going up to institutions over time. Um, and, you know, I, I think I feel like, and, and you might've seen this like two, three years ago when we were walking around talking about event contracts, it was just kind of this weird, it's a little bit like crypto in 2010 where what is this weird, bizarre thing that makes us a little bit uncomfortable now event contracts is a new cool thing. Like everyone talks about event contracts, you know, new, like people that are in college, it's like, if you're doing the exciting thing, it's crypto AI and it's maybe event contracts now, right? And and
0: Like Tarek touched on, event trading is hovering on the brink of mass institutional appeal. Lately, Kalshi has seen increased adoption from a diverse range of age groups and backgrounds. Tarek thinks this is because Kalshi offers trading on events that people understand most people don't discuss mergers and acquisitions or IPOs at the dinner table. But politics, sports, and the Oscars, those are topics people discuss, debate, and hold strong opinions
1: on. It's really interesting. And and the way I describe it, so the age is pretty... We, we're seeing people that are like, you know, 20s to 30s. We're seeing people 30s to 40s. We're actually seeing also a spike, 50s plus. Uh, people that have enough disposable income, and they're interested in new asset class, and they want to trade it seriously. And the reason we're seeing this is because we are an exchange. We're not a broker. And, you know... As as an exchange, we're offering an asset class that can relate to anyone. Anyone can have this type of risk and anyone can relate to all these events. Whereas usually brokers, what they do is they differentiate per specific demographic, right? Robinhood is for the younger generation, Fidelity is for the older, but they're both allowing these two sets of people to trade stocks at the end of the day or options. So the asset class itself actually appeals to broader masses, which is the same thing as the event contracts. Um, In terms of gender, we are, you know, obviously it is more heavily like skewed towards males, but compared to traditional instruments, we are seeing more diverse participation and definitely more female participation. And it's because these events, it's things that people, more people relate to. I mean, um, at the dinner table, people debate COVID, people debate economics, maybe they debate politics. They're less likely to debate what are Cisco's financials in the last quarter. And I and I think that's a really exciting part of this sort of instrument. Um, Lastly, in terms of sophistication, we're seeing also the gamut. So we have a lot of people that are pretty sophisticated traders. They trade on options. They day trade, you know, they're adding this to their sort of range of financial instruments that they're using, and some of them are like smaller funds. They're small hedge funds. A little bit of how crypto started, where it was like, traders are really into it, and then sm- they formed smaller funds, and then those small funds grew all the way to Citadel. Um, we didn't, we're not at Citadel level yet, but we're at the small funds level. And then but we're also seeing people that just do not understand options. They do not feel like they have an edge in stocks, but they feel like they do understand politics, because they read Politico every day. And they're really in tune with what's going on in Congress. And they feel like, oh, I have potentially an edge here and I want to trade on that. And so it's introducing new people to the financial ecosystem, which I'm really excited about.
0: Kalshi is gaining notoriety pretty quickly, but it's not without challenges. Tarek says one of their biggest challenges is liquidity.
1: Well, liquidity is at a basic level. At the end of the day, we're a marketplace. We're an exchange. And marketplaces are amazing businesses in the long term because they have strong moats. And it's like once you establish yourself as the place where... People come and need to basically trade these things, and this is where the party is. This is, you know, now everybody's going to want to come to the party, and no one will go to another party. The difficulty is getting the party, like that initial, um, getting the party kick-started with these types of markets. It's like a little bit of a chicken in the egg, and you have to get more liquidity. More liquidity brings more volume, and more volume brings more liquidity, and how do you kind of crack that? We're making a lot of progress. So since our launch, we're already at 100x, so two orders of magnitude above the liquidity that we had at launch less than a year ago. So we're definitely on the trajectory, which is really exciting. But, you know, obviously, keep on keeping on improving the Korea, I would say, is the main uh, one of the main areas of focus.
0: Now, Kalshi has its eye on politics. Tarek wants Kalshi to offer event trading on political events like what party will take control of the House or Senate?
1: Biggest opportunity, I would say, uh, and you may be familiar with this, is it, I would say is listing uh, markets on the political control of, of the House and Congress, so these election markets, I think I don't. I can't think of anything that brings more risk to the economy today um, uh, than this event. Uh, especially given, you know, the world is ever more polarized. You're seeing this kind of shift, uh, this one eighty degree shift every time we have a shift in administration or a shift in in, in uh, 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 Senate and and the House. And so people can now hedge. If you're in different industries, like you can basically hedge whoever is going to be in power against whoever is going to be in power making essential decisions. They're like contrary to, to what your agenda or business plan is. So I think that's a pretty big one for us. We have the proposal now in front of the CFTC and uh, it's been getting amazing momentum. So that's that's been a very, very exciting development.
0: The November elections are fast approaching and a lot is on the table for the world of fintech. I sat down with Caitlin Bradley to talk about the 2022 elections and what they could mean for the fintech
2: space. I'm Caitlin Bradley. I am a shareholder at Brownstein High at Barber Shrek. I joined the firm two and a half years ago, going on three. So I am a pandemic lobbyist. And before that, I was at the House Financial Services Committee under Sherwin Waters as the director of investor and capital markets policy. And I've been around D.C. for about 10 or 11 years now.
0: Caitlin's no stranger to Washington politics, and she's been experiencing the tense political climate firsthand.
2: I mean, it's always like this, particularly in midterms. Um, when there's a chance that you're going to have a divided government, which is basically kind of what we have now because of the tight margins in the Senate and the House. So I think it's more pins and needles. Everyone's on pins and needles, utilizing social media, trying to get the base, their base to come out and vote, um, you know, and really trying to drive home the message that resonates with their party. So on the Democratic side, that's, you know, it's the Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court. On the Republican side, it's, you know, the price of groceries and gas, um, so I think we're going to have an interesting uh, week in, a, in the next week or so, trying to figure out who exactly is going to end up in the right spot, and we might not even know. I mean, in the Georgia um, Senate race, I think we'll have a runoff, and fortunately, they changed the, um, the runoff timeline, so we should know at least this time by the end of the year who's in the Senate, but um, I wouldn't call it open warfare, but it is tense.
0: When it comes to Washington finance, Caitlin knows what she's doing, having been both the chief of the Waters Committee and the chair of the Financial Services Committee. She has her finger on the pulse of the committee's agenda. Caitlin recognizes that the Financial Services Committee is at a pretty sharp turning point.
2: I think, well, number one, I think if Republicans take the majority in the House, they're going to plus up the committee. They're going to add more members. Um, in the past, they had up to 75 members. So I think we're going to see a lot of new members. And I think for the Democratic side, that probably means the committee turns, turns more progressive just because of the, the base um, that will be interested in serving on the committee. It's going to be a lot harder, I think, regardless if, it, if they plus up the size of the committee, um, you know, to, to really foster that bipartisanship. But what they're really looking at, I think, are three things, at least. One is small business capital formation, how to promote that. Um, the other is how to maintain competitiveness with China. And um, that's a very big talking point from the uh, ranking member, McHenry, who's going to be the next chair if the house slips. And then um, also promoting innovation and fintech. And so I think we'll see very likely a new subcommittee just devoted purely to fintech. With fintech innovation rapidly growing,
0: trade associations like the American Bankers Association are trying to walk a very fine line, balancing the interests of credit unions, banks and financial services companies.
2: The big challenge is... How to balance responsible innovation with consumer or investor protections? The Democrats feel um, feel like the innovation and the fin, you know fintech um, space isn't isn't rogue, isn't disadvantaging minorities, for example, but also um, you know the the competition with banks. I mean, the American Bankers Association, some of the banks' lobbyists. Um, I mean, they have a very powerful lobby and. What you don't want to see, and you you saw this with the stablecoin bill that McHenry and Earl Waters are negotiating, is, you know, they don't want to leave anyone out. They want everybody to be happy. And so for the stablecoin bill, the issuer can be a bank or a non-bank. They provided both paths. And I think they've got to try to walk that line so that they're not alienating the credit unions, the banks, you know, the core financial services companies that have been in existence a lot longer.
0: And speaking of that, I've got to give a shout out to some of our other amazing, especially women guests who are on these issues. We've got Jennifer Lassiter from Digital Dollar Project who was on twice last year and is coming on again. Nicole Elam from the National Bankers Association was on last season, hopefully will come on again. I mean, these are just such huge innovation issues and it takes so many people thoughtfully working on them. You know, and, and you're definitely like in the mix on so many of these issues. Like when you're talking to all of these clients, whether it's you know innovation, like newer clients or more traditional, TradFi or DeFi? Like, how are you helping them kind of manage risk inside of the Beltway? And, and do you have any advice on managing risk?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is having the relationships with the members, with the staff, and having a trusted, deep relationship. I mean, that's the best thing that you can do. You know, you can't just walk in once the problem has already happened. And, you know, everybody's already formed the opinion and try to, you know, try to foster relationships on the fly. You've got to be there. It's going to be a long, sustainable relationship. Um, where you can educate the member and get them either on your side as a champion or you know at least to a point where they feel comfortable um, you know voting on something or dealing with something that uh, may favor what you're doing or on the you know on the opposite side, not voting for something or not not doing something yeah. that would really harm you.
0: So for the Gensler agenda, I think it's the million dollar question like he has all these proposals coming out and crypto. And market structure, like do you think if um if the house flips, are there gonna be oversight hearings? Like we're already seeing some moderate Democrats push back. Like what is what is kind of the interplay between Congress and Gensler at the SEC as far as like checks and balances of government?
2: Yeah, and I will say having spent the vast majority of my career on the on the hill in the minority, um, you know, I'm very familiar with the tools that the Republicans use to slow down an agency such as the CFPB or the SEC that they feel like in this instance, has gone rogue and is not following the will of Congress. And what they're going to do is they're going to have the chair Gensler come up to testify, I don't know, maybe twice a year at least. They're going to have each individual director of the division come up to testify and explain what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, you know, the members feel like they're just academics. They don't understand these issues. So I think it's going to be proving that they understand the issues. And then also they're going to be using their investigatory to- tools to you know, threaten subpoenas to request documents, and that's going to slow um, the agenda down at at the SEC. But I honestly, I don't think. I mean, having known Gary for a long time, I don't think he um, he really does. I don't think he really does slow down, even despite all of that extra noise going on in Congress. You know, he's he's described himself as a markets guy. He really wants to get done with. A lot of reforms in the fixed income space, the crypto, the uh, equity market structure reforms, and fixed income and treasury market structure reforms. And then add on to that, you know, he's got to follow the will of Congress, which is really pressuring him to finalize rules on on climate change for public company disclosures, for asset manager disclosures, and for you know and for uh, anti green greenwashing
0: proposals. There's a lot up in the air right now with the elections and what that could mean for fintech. If you think you know what Gensler's future agenda might look like, well, Tarek might have an opportunity for you.
1: Members can suggest uh, markets for, any, you know, for anyone to trade on them. And then they go through our compliance and, and our, our whole process to approve. Um, I think we, we try to kind of keep a balance of number of markets versus number of participants so that it's not too overwhelming. We don't want to have too many markets for kind of the participants are on Calci. On and so we're trying to kind of costly balance that. Um, but you know, people also always want more choice. So it's kind of a constant sort of balance between you know, people wanting more choice and having enough liquidity and having enough participation per market, for every single market. Um, but yeah, people can suggest any market they, they can think about it. and we'll try to make it happen as long as we, we can from a regulatory and a liquidity standpoint.
0: Well, there you have it. The first episode of season two. Thanks so much for tuning in. Next up, we'll be exploring the future of crypto with Gabby Cuts and Craig Salm. Talk soon.